God, thank you for another day to come be in your presence, Lord. We know you're here already, God, and we welcome you to this place, to this room. And thank you, Lord, that you're uh, you're God. And and as we just sing, and we're not, Lord, and we can rest knowing that you're in charge of some, some things, and you've taken all sorts of things off our shoulders, things that we do not need to be responsible for, and that we can um, rest knowing that you've got things under control. Lord, you've created us. You know everything about us. Lord, you knew us before we were made. Lord, you, you formed the planets. You, for, you formed all the beautiful things that we get to experience in this world. Um, you desire for us to cooperate with you, to know you personally and intimately through your son, Jesus. So I pray, God, that as we look into your word, Lord, you would connect some dots for us, help us understand um, some more about who you are so that we can join you, God, in, in your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a kid, um, two times I tried to change my name. I One time, I wouldn't answer to my name Josh, so I started answering to Dave, which was my which is my middle name. And so my uncles, they were like, there was this funny phase. You just wouldn't respond to Josh. It was just Dave. And so then I'd switch, and I wanted to be Rick, which has nothing to do with my name at all. It's not a middle name. It's not a surname or anything like that. Not even a nickname. But... I wanted to be Joshua Rick, and I wanted people to call me Rick so that I could be J.R., because I thought the guy in Dallas was really cool <laughs> growing up. My parents watched a show named Dallas, and uh, anyway, I wanted to be J.R., but it didn't work. Couldn't change my name. I was stuck with it. Another thing is, as I was growing up and I realized I, I'm short, I really, really, I even prayed to grow. Prayed, God, would you help me to grow? I want to be a little bit taller. There's a song like that, I think, too, right? And, uh, you know, I just realized I'm never going to be able to dunk a ball. never going to be able to jump all that high. I'm never, never going to be able to see over the fence, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so there's certain things that I just came to realize. This is just not going to happen. When I was in junior high, I, I had to graduate first because they lined us up by height. And I was the first one to get my diploma. Nobody clapped. And I think it's because they didn't know they were supposed to. But if I had been taller, then maybe I would have been able to experience some applause there for that accomplishment but but then later on more serious note i had asthma growing up and i was like i remember praying god i frustrated with this i get frustrated having to do this my two sons they have asthma and my daughter doesn't seem like she does but my two sons they have asthma they struggle with breathing at times and i'm i get again i get frustrated at just dealing with that i get frustrated at having to uh you know if they're really sick if they got to go to the hospital if i have to put them on a breathing treatment at home it's just, you know, I'll pray, God, would you just change the situation? Would you fix them? Would you fix it? Would you fix this thing? Would you make it go away? And as I prayed and I really believed that God would do that, still have asthma. And I, and I, I deal with, we deal with things like that where we're like, God, I really, I would love it if you'd change this thing. Why haven't you changed this thing? There's some choices that I've made that, I wish I could just undo. There's some things, there's some mistakes, some sin. I wish I could just rewind and start that day over. And, and there's some decisions I wish I could purchase. I wish I could just return. We all have these things that we wish, God, would you just fix it? Would you change it? And then when he doesn't, we're stuck with wondering, how am I going to live with this? How am I going to live with this decision? How am I going to live this way? How am I going to 
what do I do? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at how to deal with things when God doesn't fix or change. Whether it's something we were handed or something we did, how do we handle the things that, that just are? And when God acts or when he doesn't act, what we learn in Scripture is that he is ruling the universe from a vantage point, from a perspective that is far higher than ours. He, he, he acts and moves based on things that we don't completely understand. He has, excuse me, he has information that is not available to us. So he orchestrates things to work in a certain way that we can't fully see and know. He has an eternal view. There are things that are hidden from our sight, but they're not hidden from God's sight. We, we like to believe that if God's not, if I can't see God, he must not see me. But the truth is he is viewing things from a much different vantage point. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at God's hand of providence, the way that he sees things beforehand. The word providence, it means to see beforehand. God has this unique vantage point. He sees some things down the road. He sees the end before the beginning. And so because of that, he's able to do some things. Like, for example, he's able to hear all of our prayers all at once. Everyone can pray all at one time, and God's able to hear and respond to prayers that are being prayed not only that, but he's able to see all the actions of every individual, even individuals who are behind closed doors. There's nothing really hidden from God. Hebrews 4, verse 13 reminds us of that. How can God do that? Here's a quote from a, a scientist. He's a medical doctor at Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. But he's studied and written some things on, on God's ways and how different they are from ours. It says this, Christianity makes some rather remarkable claims about the abilities of God. From a human perspective, the idea that any being can do these kinds of actions seems preposterous. However, since God is outside the box, we need to think outside the box. God, he explains later in this paper that you've got a link to it at the bottom of the listening guide. He exists in at least one more dimension than, than us. He, if he were limited to our dimensions that he couldn't have created us, he couldn't be ruling over the universe, he's outside he interacts with us on this dimension, on the dimension that we live in, but he's not trapped or, or bound to reality like we know it. And we're going to look at that idea in a little bit. But in the Bible, there's just these amazing statements made about God and as, as he relates to us. Look at Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. This is from a paraphrase, and so this is a little uh, from something called the message. This is a little real contemporary language. Um, a guy, he just looked at it and he tried to contemporize the Bible. Just real briefly, let's look at this verse that he... This is Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. It says, It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us. This is the idea. He had his designs on us for, his, for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. God has this internal plan. He's looking at things from an eternal vantage point. He's not limited by us. He wants us to cooperate with him, to join him in his plan. There's two things that are important to remember about God's perspective. First thing is this. God is acting, and we've kind of looked at this, but God is acting with eternal view of things. He's looking at things from a very different vantage point. Secondly, he's not limited to the dimensions we live in. You might want to jot those down, but it's just God is, like we just saying, you are God alone. From before time began, you were on your throne. You know that... There's just things that we don't fully understand. It's okay to say, you're God, I'm not. This is just the way you are. So what I want to do is, 
like last week we looked at God's providence, how our confidence grows every time we trust God. Every time we take a step forward in trusting Him, our confidence in Him grows, like the life of Abraham. He stepped forward in certain things that seemed crazy to believe God would do. And he, his confidence grew so that the next time God tested him, he took another step forward believing God would come through. And another step forward. And as God did this, his confidence grew more and more. Today what I want to do is look at how do I trust God and his providence when I realize there's some things in my life that are not going to fix, they're not going to be changed. And somehow God will weave together his overall plan for the whole world and for, for my individual life as well. So here's the key thought for this morning at the top of your listening guide. Letting God be God is the way to handle the things we cannot fix. Letting God be God. Just, all right, God, you be God. That's how we handle the things that we can't change or fix. Just stamping that. God's God, I'm not. And I want to look at that through the life of, mainly through the life of David and through the darkest days of his life. So we're going to look at David who is the hero and the king. God's you know, the, the most famous king in Israel, handpicked by God himself. The people of Israel wanted a king at one point. God said you didn't need one. They wanted one. And so God allowed them to pick their own king. You know who his name was? Anybody know the first king of Israel? Saul. Yeah, Saul was a, a man that, that they chose for their king. And then it didn't work out real well for them. So the next time around, God says, I'm going to pick a king for you. And so... Through a prophet named Nathan, the family selected, the family, Jesse and his sons present themselves, and God handpicks this, this young man to be king, this great warrior. His name is David. And up to this point that we're going to look at in 2 Samuel 11, David had not lost a single battle. Since Goliath, he was just victorious as, a, as an individual, and then as a king, he was victorious. The ladies of the nations, they sang songs about this guy. He was just, he was really, you know, a great leader, a great man. He had a tremendous heart for God, strong, godly character, wrote many of the Psalms that we, as we pursue a walk with God, we open up the Bible, we read things that God through the Holy Spirit had him pen and, and just inspires our faith. This is the guy, this is King David. Jesus comes from his lineage. Jesus sits on the throne of David, the scripture says. So David what we're going to look at right now, that's all the greatest things. We're going to look at David's dark, his darkest days from a part of his life that I'm sure most of us would wish would just be forgotten about. And reading this story is kind of disturbing. It's like you're watching Date, Dateline NBC. Anybody watch Dateline? You know, it's, it comes on late at night. Probably shouldn't be you know, turning on such a serious show late at night. Turn on Dateline. It just recounts these horrible Things that happen and you're like, how could that happen? This is creepy and disturbing. There's people out there like that. And then we recognize, you know, we're all pretty pretty capable of doing some horrible things. And then we shut it off and go to bed. <laughs> and sleep on it. But the story we're looking at today is kind of like Dateline NBC's story. There's some things in it that are going to make you uncomfortable. If you're not yet convinced that God is real and that you've not yet decided to make Jesus the boss of your life, let this be a conversation starter for you. As you're wrestling with what it means to walk with him, let this story be a conversation starter. Ask some people, how, explain this further to me. Help me understand this. Find some people who walk with God and maybe dialogue with this. Let's look at this. David's darkest day, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look very quickly. I'm going to summarize portions and we'll look at some sections as well. 
from the text. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, the beginning it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, springtime was usually a time that the rain was stopped, the harvest was good, and so it was time to militarily advance. Okay? David, in the, in the time when kings go off to war, David the king, he sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel, Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Rather than going to war like it was you know, probably expected, and rather than going to war like other kings would have done, David stayed at home this year, and it, he got himself into a heap of trouble. He gets himself into a serious mess. In the next few verses, we see David commits adultery with a lady named Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 5, you see this. And just real summary, he goes up on his rooftop, he goes up on the roof of his palace, and while he's there, he sees this beautiful woman bathing. Now, I find it interesting. And I'm gonna, I, wanna read, I want to read into the text, and then this is just me reading into it, but I find it interesting. You know, she's out there bathing, and her, her outdoor bath was in view of the king's palace. And I'm thinking, she probably knew this. She probably was aware she was probably in this place that um, was hidden from other places, but in view of the, of the palace. And I want to pin this on David, but as I read into this, I'm sure that Bathsheba knew this was somewhat you know, out in the open. And look at what happens. She, she's bathing. David says, he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and he asks his servants, who is this woman over there? More than just checks her out, he calls for her. They said, this is, this is actually Uriah's wife. Uriah happens to be one of David's top 37 soldiers. He's a man that David knew. He was listed in a list of top soldiers that David had. This is a married woman to one of your top men, David. And she's apparently a beautiful woman because the servants knew who she was. I'm sure that David's court women knew who she was. But David sends for her, brings her to his palace. He sleeps with her. He has sex with her. And says she purifies herself, goes home, and she later sends word to David. You know, that night, yeah, I'm pregnant. David's in trouble. Next, David tries to cover himself up, verses 6 through 13. And this is what he does. She's pregnant, so what does he think to do? He says, I'm going to get her husband, come back from the battlefield, and we're going to set it up to where he has sex with her. And then it appears to be you know, their child. And so he brings Uriah back from the battlefield, hoping that she will go home to sleep with his wife, cover up David's dirty deed. And Uriah, he refuses to go home. He won't go home to sleep with his wife. He says, how can I do that? My, my men are out in the fields. I'm going to go sleep with my men. Appreciates the break, but he, he stays with his men, does not go sleep with his wife. David's like, oh, that didn't work. Now, this is pretty despicable, what he's trying to do to cover up. Then what he does is he decides, you know what? I'll get him drunk. So he, he has him, give, gets him drunk. Still, Uriah refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. After this, it gets even more disturbing. If you skip ahead to verse 14, it says this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, this is going to Joab, the, the military commander. 
The letter says, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, Uriah is carrying this letter that has his, you know, the command that's going to seal his fate. He'll die. Verse 16, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. It's interesting. Later on, the messenger comes back to David and reports the news. And he says this, The men overpowered us, David. They came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Oh, by the way, moreover, he was told to make sure he gives him this line. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. And David remarks, he says this in verse 25. David told the messenger, say to Joab, Joab's the the commander, don't let this upset you. The The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. It's kind of like he was saying, people die in battle, you know. This is what happens. We go to war, people die. Casualty of war. Press on. David, what David had done, really displeased the Lord. The deed was done, and he thought, okay, there's only a few more details to cover up my sin. So verse 26 says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. He was likely a very good man. Verse 27, At the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife. She bore him a son, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Plan A didn't work. You know, get Uriah to go home, sleep with her, covered up. No, that didn't work. Get her drunk, get him drunk. That didn't work either. So then David thinks, I pulled it off, and I'll take her to be my own, and then it will look legit, our child that we just had together. And he thought, man, I'd really covered up my sin. All was nice and tidy, and then God shed some light on David's darkness. Nathan, one of the prophets who had a relationship with David, he delivers this message from God. And he tells the king about this about this story. He, he says, I'm going to share with you a story about a rich and powerful man who took advantage of a poor, humble, good man from the same city. And David, he gets enraged at what this rich, powerful man did to this poor, humble person. And he says, that man deserves to die. He deserves to die. And he, he cites some of the law that would condemn this man to death. He says, this man needs to pay for what he's done. And at this point in the story, David or Nathan, he pronounces God's judgment. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now he's not saying, you're the man. He's not patting him on the back. He's saying, you're that man in this story. You're guilty. You have done wrong. This is what the Lord The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had had been too little, I would have given you even more. The prophet, he rehearses all the blessings of God that are evidence of God's hand of providence in the life of David. God showered David with blessing. Verse 9 says, So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah. See, he thought it was hidden. God saw. He is the God who sees. 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David realizes at this point, he hadn't successfully covered up his own sin. God had been paying attention. God had seen. And then the prophet lays out these serious consequences. Look at the consequence. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. So, pause there for a second. He says, The sword will never depart from your house. Calamity will be upon you. In the next few chapters you see one of David's son rapes his daughter. And then the brother who, who knows about the rape goes and kills the son eventually. And then the son who, who kills the rapist brother goes eventually after his father, David. David's on the run from his son Absalom. Calamity fell upon the house. The sword wouldn't depart. This, this began to unfold. Look at where it continues to go. It says, this is before your very eyes, he says, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. The consequences in this story, they match the level of privilege and responsibility that David had. He was a very privileged man. With that responsibility came a high level of accountability. And God makes David an example here. David's initial response is this, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He calls it what it is. We're going to look at a little more of his confession in just a moment, but he calls it what it is. God saw that David had a genuine, heartfelt, contrite confession. He was repenting. And David didn't shirk his guilt. He didn't push this or blame this on someone else. He took responsibility, confessed it openly. And so Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. It seems weird. And people in the first service were scratching their heads about this as I talk to them like that's just so wrong so despicable and God forgives him he says God I've or I've sinned against the Lord he called it what it was and Nathan their prophet replies the Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die but here's the consequence because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt the son born to you will die so this son that David and Bathsheba had together would die. And David's response was very, very different than other kings who's, who were caught in something. There was another king named Ahab who a prophet went to him. And the king got, he was kind of a wimpy man, so he went to his wife, and the wife went and threatened the life of the prophet. Another king later on in history, King Herod, John the Baptist, uh, with the things that he said to King Herod, King Herod had him beheaded. There was other reasons related to a wife as well, but there was just these different kinds of uh, approaches from kings who would say, you know, I have the power to just end this and to silence this. But David, rather than saying, you know, I could just take Nathan out, I could just do away with Nathan, this story will end right here and right now. Instead, he just, he turns the corner. because I have sinned against the Lord. He called it what it was. He's forgiven, but the consequences remain. There are some things that he could not change. Something he did here, there was going to be some serious consequences. David's response, here it is, to what he couldn't fix or change. It says in verse 15, chapter 12, After Nathan had gone home, just as God said, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. 
Verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. David prayed because he knew God could change this. He knew God had relented in the past and prayer changes things. Somehow, we, when we pray, somehow our choices and our prayers, you know, God weaves those things into his plan he wants us to draw close to him in prayer, but sometimes he does not answer in the way that he'd want. He is God. He's not a vending machine. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child dies. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. Now look at, look at how he responds, okay? David got up from the ground after he'd washed. He put on lotions and he changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. David pleads for the life of his child because he knew he was responsible for his death. But he did not demand that God give him his way. Instead, David bowed to the God who is sovereign. And he, he, he trusted in God's providence. He bowed to him. And sometimes when we're going through things or we're asking God to change something, if we don't bow to the God who, who is in charge of things, who sees things beforehand, we can get bitter, we can get angry, we can resent God, we can start pointing the finger at Him, we can withdraw from God. But instead, David, he just lets God be God. And that's, that's how he deals with the situation. He says, God, you're God. Verse 21 says, his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and you eat? He answered, while the child was, this is David's response, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. And I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? There's this finality of death. Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David has this eternal view of things at this point. He, real, he realizes God will make this good. He trusted in God's hand of providence. The baby was okay because the baby bypassed this fallen world. This baby was in the presence of God, and, and David recognized God's still in charge. So accepting what is and what will be from the hand of God, that's how we, we move forward is we accept. When we can't fix it, we just accept what is and what will be as from the hand of God. Job was a man, not going to tell you the whole story, but Job was a good, righteous man that God allowed to be tested by tragedy in tragic circumstances. Job was a good man. He had, he had this, I think it's seven sons, three daughters. He's a righteous man. And Satan wants to attack and torment this man and his family. And God allows the testing to occur. And even upon his own body, Job is he's afflicted with these painful boils. And in the middle of the testing, we see this verse. It says, So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job was scraping his skin with a piece of broken pottery over what had done. He lost everything. And as he sat among the ashes, his wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain 
your integrity, curse God and die. There's a supportive wife. He's trying to walk with God. He's trying to trust Him and be on track. And, and she's just like, she doesn't have the faith anymore to move on. Everything they lost was, everything they had was lost. Curse God and die. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? That means that it's integrity comes from the word, in, we get the word integrated, meaning outside, inside, or they're the same. You don't have to put a show on anymore, Job. Curse God and die. Walk away, withdraw from God. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. He accepted what was, what is and what will be as from the hand of God. And when we do that, it helps us. It helps us move on when we've blown it. It's the first thing it helps us with. Like in David's case, Psalm 51, we see his confession. You can read about Psalm chapter 51. You can read his confession. And, and as he really describes what he'd done and what he'd come to recognize, but he says this near the end. He says, you do not, speaking to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In other words, he's saying, if I could fix this in some other way, I would. But since he can't, David couldn't. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We cannot fix our sin on our own. But God has already made a way for it to be fixed. He's paid for our sin by giving us His Son, sending His Son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. God wants our hearts. When we come to the point where we recognize and we allow God to show us our sin, show us the things that we've done wrong, He wants us to allow it to break us and bring us to a point of true confession, true repentance, to where we turn a corner like David had. 1 John 1.9, God is so gracious. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just, and he will, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It makes things right when we go to God and we, we just come clean before him. Otherwise, guilt, shame, all those things prevent us from making any progress. We hit a wall because of guilt and shame over the things we've done. So what we need to do is we need to accept this. This, this is where I'm at. What will be is, is from the hand of God. I, I can move forward with His power. Another thing that accepting things that come from the will of, from the hand of God is that it protects us against bitterness. One of the main things is bitterness has a way of choking the life out of us as we get angry at people or at God. And so when we accept what is and what will be as from the hand of God, it allows us just to not to not choose things that would allow bitterness to creep in. Look at the way the apostles responded when they were arrested. and They were arrested for healing a crippled man. But then they're released, and after the release from prison, they're praising God with the rest of the church leaders, and they pray this powerful prayer. But look at the perspective that they have in the midst of their prayer. They accepted what came through the hand of God. They said this. This is a prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, and here's God's providence, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Meaning they crucified Jesus. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders 
through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They'd accepted what was. After they'd prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. If you trust God and accept what is, you'll stop fighting against things that you can't change. And you'll be able to make progress. You'll be able to move forward. You'll be able to stay focused on what is really helpful. You'll be able to be a help to your friends in a way that you may not be able to right now if you're stuck. You'll be able to be a help to your church family, to your biological family, to friendships. The joy can return into your life. Anytime my mind goes back to the things that I can't change, I just get stuck. And so what I need to do is I need to hand that back to God and ask Him to help me trust Him as I just move forward. Day by day, not trying to to just wrestle down and God and try to get Him to do what I want to fix things. There's a verse here at the at the bottom. It's a prayer, and this this whole idea of God being the potter, us being the clay, is is some imagery that you see in the Book of Isaiah in three different places. You see it in the Jeremiah, another Old Testament book. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he actually uses a similar this same idea. But it's a prayer. And as we close this message, I'd like you to just imagine what your life would be like, what our church would be like, if everyone would just decide, I'm going to let God be God. And I'm not going to try to change the things that I can't or fix the things that I can't or get Him to just work things in my favor. I'm going to just trust that He's he's sovereign. He's in control. He sees things beforehand. The verse says this. I'm going to read this, and I'd like us to pray this together. It says, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of Your hand. This is powerful imagery. Something to pray and to just mull on and to declare to God. So let's let's pray this together as we just read this to the Lord. Would Would you read this with me? O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Father, let's, we just thank you for, for your word. God, we thank you for even these stories, God, that we read and we just can't quite reconcile in our mind. And Lord, we also think this story very likely takes us to some scenarios and stories of our own past. Lord, it probably takes us to some places where we wish we wouldn't have done some things or we'd like to change some things. And we sure would like you to fix some things. God, thank you, Lord, that you're weaving things in our life for good. If we'll cooperate with you, Lord, if we'll surrender our way to you, choose to follow you in faith, Lord, you can take even the worst of things that we experience and use those for our good, Lord. Some of us here, oh God, we need your forgiveness, Lord, as we Maybe this morning you've brought some things to our mind that need to be confessed. Very likely, God, that we're also carrying like a heavy weight, a a tremendous load of guilt and shame over the things we've done, and we've never really done business with you, and we've never really dealt with some things. God, I pray that this morning you would allow us to do that. As we sing, as we pray, I pray, God, if you've brought something to our mind that we need to confess, Lord, I pray that we would, in the quietness of our heart, Lord, that we would just call that what it is, Lord, if it's sin, if it's disobedience, if it's a form of rebellion, Lord, if it's a struggle with um, 
people. If it's bitterness, it's just eating away at our lives because of some things and things we can't change. Lord, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would bring that to you, present that to you, knowing that you're the potter, we're the clay. You're shaping us. You're making us into the people you desire us to be. Lord, you have a plan for our lives. And Lord, we can't understand it all from our vantage point, but you you see things beforehand. Lord, we bow before you, the one who is provident. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.